Welcome to Conversations Over Coffee, where we're brewing inspiring discussions on the Philippine startup ecosystem with those who are making things happen. I'm your host, Pitsantas from Kickstart Ventures. Join me in every episode as we sit down with key figures in the startup community as we explore their successes and challenges and how we can work together to shape the future. So in a recent Asia Tech Review newsletter released a few weeks ago, a striking headline was published stating early-stage startup funding is having a moment in Southeast Asia. Their article was supported by research from January Capital stating the resilience of seed and Series A investments in Southeast Asia, with 2023 witnessing more seed deals than the entire previous year. With other VCs like Jungle Ventures and Antler driving this shift towards pre-seed investments in the region, we want to bring to the table valuable insights through the Kickstart lens on this trend and address the unique dynamics, rewards, and challenges of pre-seed and seed investments in Southeast Asia. I'm joined today by our senior analysts Kendrick Ong and Bettina Capistrana to talk about it. So, welcome guys. Hello. Hi, Beth. <laughs> so what do you think about this, this headline of early stage startup funding, having a moment? I think I disagree with the statement that um, pre-seed and or early stage investments are only having a moment now. And that's because that has always been where it's at that stage that we see a lot of very good deal flow and traction from in terms of our pipeline. and. It's because if you look at it from a regional perspective outside of Singapore and Indonesia, we haven't really seen a lot of later stage uh, startups coming from countries like the Philippines, Malaysia, and Thailand, Vietnam. I think there are a couple of reasons why we have seen perhaps a shift towards more early stage companies. Um, the first one is that really just a question of who increases capital to your company at the next round. So if, let's say, you invest in a Series B company, um, this is typically a larger round. And typically, when a company raises money, uh, they allot 12 to 18 months uh, runway for this capital. Um, in the past few months, we have seen a slowdown of investor activity. Investors take more time doing diligence. They look more closely into bottom line rather than top line first, with a focus more on profitability. And for that reason, perhaps... It's riskier for some to be investing in, let's say, Series B or C companies because once these companies move towards their Series D, Series E rounds, these will tend to have to be bigger rounds needing larger investor supports and bigger amounts. In the Philippines also, we saw a lot of the more mature startups raised in the previous year. When you think of it in that 12 to 18 month schedule, perhaps a lot of them are in just towards the tail end or preparing to go into market. Right, very good points. I mean, even if you look at the at the data uh, in the in the January capital report, right? Um, it it you know I think there's a little more nuance behind that headline of early stage having a moment where you can actually see the movement of early stage deals in the region are kind of just continuing a trend that we've been seeing for several years now, right? There's really only been a slowdown in the later stage where, you know, if you think about it, in many ways, the emergence of these later stage deals has only been really recent in the region. Right, I think that's very true. And if you think about it in terms of like the history of Kickstart, Kickstart, we started in 2012. We were the first VC in the Philippines at that time. So it gives context on how young the ecosystem is here in the Philippines and just in Southeast Asia as a whole, which is why I think we're still at that stage of really nurturing the ecosystem. And it's only now that 
it's only been very recent that we've had the chance to see these later stage startups because these things take time to grow. And we've seen that in our portfolio as well. Yeah, I think especially for the Philippines, I remember when I joined Kickstart early last year, Joan, Jason, who I was working closely with at the time, kept telling me that it was a good time for me to have joined the Philippine VC space because things were really starting to get active. So, so that's when you saw a lot of large traces from a lot of the local startups. But before that, as Bettina has said, really the most active scene in the Philippine space has been kind of in the seed, pre-seed or pre-A stage. Most of the companies have been around that level. And I think, as Bet you mentioned, at the moment, it seems to be just a kind of a reversion to that norm. So in terms of the deals that we've been seeing, a lot of them have really, really been pre-seed to pre-series A companies. Um, and outside of that bucket, like for a little more mature companies, they tend to do like a bridge round. I think, though, just on this topic, an interesting thing to highlight is that we've noticed how earlier in the year, majority of the deals or pitches that we receive was really to highlight the growth of these startups, right? But in the second half, we saw a change in like how they were messaging the opportunity by showing that they were, for example, on a path to profitability, right? So you could see how founders themselves were responding to this new environment and by highlighting profitability metrics when it wasn't, when it used to be more focused on revenue growth previously. I think you touched on a very good point. If I just kind of look back anecdotally into the pitches that we have attended, the past few months, I think really a lot of the pitches, a lot of the founders have shifted their focus on being net income profitable. A very common phrase that we hear um, when we talk to these founders is, oh, you know, we don't really need money that urgently. We're looking for the perfect partner. We're looking for a, let's say, a deal terms that work for us. So I think that's also part of the slowdown that we have seen. All this kind of these past Six to 12 months, the focus towards profitability, unit economics, um, your margins, I think for some have allowed them to kind of have more elbow room to wait for better deal terms, say, wait for um, market conditions as well to get better. Things like that, I think, also something that we have seen quite recently. Okay, so given the fact that most of what we're seeing now, um, you know, the, the opportunities where we can invest are really at the early stage, what would you say sets these investment opportunities apart from later stage deals in terms of risk, in terms of return potential, in terms of the involvement and support that they would need from us? I think really it's about um, how much you can diligence of the company. You can go by it stage by stage. So for example, if you are a seed company, typically you have the idea, perhaps you have an MVP, perhaps you've been in the market for a few weeks. And that's typically what we have seen. At this stage, typically, uh, when you do diligence, really, you are working with the founding team, the management, the key people, uh, learning their experience, how they think about the problem, how they're able to execute or how they plan to execute, as opposed to, let's say, a Series A fundraise, where typically the company has been in the market for some time and really just are looking for additional capital to scale faster. In cases like these, 
there's a lot more diligence you have seen. You have maybe one or two years worth of data, uh, customer data, execution data, team kind of performance to look more deeply into. In terms of product also, it's more fleshed out and there are a lot more things that you can kind of drill down into. Okay, so you're, you're already kind of going to my next question, right? So considering, again, many of the deals that we're looking at, many of the companies that we're looking at are early stage, how do we go about due diligence for early stage companies when you know, at their stage, there's an absence of markers of success that you would typically expect in later stage companies? I guess for early stage companies, when we do our diligence, we're really trying to get comfort on three things. The three things that we look at are the management team, the product, and the market. And how are we able to diligence that? So deep into our deals, we'll do an on-site, like a physical on-site, where we get to meet the founders, see what their day-to-day is like, put a face to the names that we've been interacting with like through email or online. And there are lots of things that you're not able to catch over Zoom. And usually like seeing operations in person and interacting with the team in person can either give you greater confidence in the team or, you know. Maybe just staying on the management team or maybe more generally just the team, right? Because at that point, like the management team is the team in many cases. Yes. Uh, and I think we kind of touched on this, Kendrick, but when we were talking about this, the, preparing for this conversation, with an early stage startup, but most of the startup, most of the business is the team at that point, right? Exactly. And that's really, um, when you do early stage investments, that's really what you're betting on. The team, their ability to f- kind of address the problem, their ability to, let's say, maneuver, change the direction of the company as needed. And that's also why we put a lot of importance into the team uh, when we do our diligence. As Bettina pointed out earlier, it's really different uh, to do it outside of Zoom. And maybe that's major old school for other people. But for me, that's really kind of one of the things I've learned joining Kickstart. And that comes out when you do diligence with companies here locally or even abroad. So typically before we do the investment, we still fly in to the company, meet the team, meet the founders. If there's kind of a team there, we kind of spend the whole day with the team. And that's one thing I really notice is that there are a lot of things that are missed when you do your diligence through Zoom. So typically, we spend the whole day with the founders. Um, we talk to key management one by one. And really, throughout the course of the day, aside from just kind of ticking checkboxes uh, around diligence points, you really are there to observe kind of the dynamics of management, how they work with each other, the subtle signals that they send each other when they respond to your questions. Especially with Mike and Joanne, that's really kind of what I think they're really good at. So typically, I would come in with my questions. <laughs> I would have this kind of long list of questions. I would go through uh, the questions with each of management one by one. But really, for what I've seen Mike and Joanne do, is really they are able to see underneath that, look at how management answers questions, how they kind of talk to each other, what the dynamics are like. And that's a big part of how we kind of assess teams as well. And I think just to add to Kendrick's point, one of the very unique things about Kickstart is we really like to drill down on our founders and the team. And when we've done diligence, we really try to ask, like, what has motivated them to do this company and why are they here? And I think for one of the 
diligences that I was working on, one of the founders said like, oh, I've never been asked this question before because it was a very personal, like asking about like the very personal motivations of this person. So I think that's one of the unique things about Kickstart. It's really trying to find that belief in the founders. And I think that's because we have a very entrepreneurial mindset in the company. Like we have an owner's mindset, right? And even like with our diligence experience, Kendrick and I, even if we are only senior analysts, Kickstart gives us the avenue to have ownership of the diligence process. We're able to frame the entire on-site experience and speak with the founders and also have that relationship with them. Because prior to Kickstart, I was in other investment firms and for other companies, of course, like the people speaking with the founders are the more senior management level. So to be able to have that experience of having that exposure has been a very unique Kickstart experience for me. Yeah, I I can definitely say uh, that being able to meet the founders and meeting the team is like a very, very much a big part of the DD process for Kickstart, right? And, you know, the few years where we had to do it purely online during the pandemic. For a few of us who, who had been around from before the pandemic, for us, kind of being able to do it in person is kind of just a return to the norm. Whereas I think for Kendrick, his specific experience when he had joined Kickstart, like he jumped right in when we were purely online. Mm-hmm. And, um, we, we were finding ways to get to know these founders as people, right? Over Zoom and virtually. And so it was quite the experience of learning that. I remember my first kind of diligence was kind of a similar format. So we had scheduled kind of a whole day of diligence with all key management people. But the only difference was doing all of it through Zoom. And I can say now having done both uh, Zoom uh, diligence days and kind of in-person diligence days, it's really very different. Yeah, I mean, like to your point earlier, right? Like those little things that you would normally notice in person, right? All of the nonverbal communication, all of the nonverbal dynamics and interactions that they have with each other, within their teams, like that you don't capture that, right? Yeah, exactly. So for example, in my experience, when you do kind of the meeting through Zoom, you walk away from diligence with answers to your questions. Um, But when you do your diligence in person, it's kind of you walk away with also answers to your questions. But more than that, you have a kind of better understanding of how kind of the whole team works together um, and better conviction of how they're able to work through this, you know, five, 10 year journey of building this company together. These are very qualitative features, but that's also why we do a technical diligence. And BIT has obviously been helping us with uh, due diligence to really see if the products that have been pitched to us exist. And I was wondering, like, how are you able to vet, right, like this product as well for these very early stage companies? And how do you know if the team that they have right now could actually implement all of these new features and upgrades to become the super platform or whatever that they will be in the future? I guess going to that second point of your, of your three things that we primarily look at it with early stage startups, right? It's about the product. and as we had kind of touched on when we were preparing for this conversation, for early stage startups, a big part of the question, in addition to who are these people, is 
are things really there? Is what they're showing us or what they're promising real in maybe to more accurate sense? Like, how real is it? Because, like, honestly, like, even, even when they're completely upfront about it, a lot of these early stage startups are quite, you know, upfront. We're still in MVP stage or, you know, we're still trying to establish product market fit. And so a lot of the conversations around the product is, again, like, what's actually there? So, you know, so that's, I think that a lot of the technical due diligence, a lot of the product due diligence is kind of just around that question, right? And even for you, but I think uh, from what I have seen, um, it's kind of similar with us, right? Like it's talking to the CTO or whoever's building their tech and getting confidence from whether it's their experience, their insight, if they've built a similar product before. And with an MVP, uh, building confidence that they're able to kind of polish the product to the level that it has to be. To some extent, investing in startups, like VC investing is really about, I mean, it's no secret that it's making bets that they will deliver, right? And for early stage startups, you're practically looking for any kind of signal or proxy or indicator that they will deliver, mm. right? And so it is about what have they done before, even before the, their, their current startup, right? What have they done before? Um, and with their current startup, what have they done so far? So it's not so important for early stage startups to have the most complete product, right? It's not important to have the most polished and most sophisticated thing. It's just about have they done everything that they can? What Have they done everything appropriate or relevant at that stage more than have they done everything, right? Mm, I think that's fair. Dipping into my past experience in software development, the more you have built, the later you are in the process, the costlier it is in all forms of cost. In terms of resource, uh, in terms of you know economic cost, financial cost, time, manpower, it is costlier to change. Mm. So we're looking for that balance of have they proven enough and have they built enough according to what they've proven. Mm. Mm. And so it's kind of looking for that balance at the, at this stage. And I think that you made a really good point um, earlier that it's really for us taking bets. Uh, and that's why if kind of investment is more interesting because the numbers are one thing, uh, but it's really kind of taking in incomplete data, um, both quantitative and qualitative, and kind of working with incomplete information and building your confidence from there and taking, as you said, bets. So the last point that you mentioned earlier, Bettina, right, was, was market. After the team, after the tech, mm. then we have TAM, the market. Yes. So how do we then look at the TAM for early stage startups? Well, how we would approach it is first we have to check if does this market already exist or do we have to make the market or do we have to build the market for this type of product? And we've seen this for some of our deals. Right, Kendrick? Yep. I think uh, when you think of TAM or the market, it's really kind of a couple of things. Uh, that we try to consider. So as Bettina, you mentioned, uh, one of those is, you know, is there a market? Is the market ready? Or does the company need to spend a bit more time or sometimes a lot of time um, educating the market? And should that be an effort on the company's part? So do they need to spend their valuable resources kind of getting the market activated? Mm. Or is, is it something that kind of happens over time? So is it something that happens naturally, something you expect to kind of just wait for. And during cases like those, uh, you're kind of positioning your company to be kind of ready uh, mm -hmm. to fully launch, fully deploy uh, once the market is there. 
So as, aside from kind of how big the market is, uh, one more thing that we consider is how fast the market's growing. So especially for technologies or products that have just emerged, typically um, once kind of the market starts to grow, uh, we see kind of a very fast growth uh, on the market year on year. So this is like something we think about regardless of kind of stage, right? But is there a, a specific way that you look at the TAM or the market with regards to early stage startups versus when we look at later stage startups? Mm-hmm. I think how Jason, so he's our investment manager, how he would always like drill down the revenue projections of of the startups that we look at is he's going to be like, okay, the startup needs like 100 million revs by 2028 or something like that. And then they need to be a 100 million rev company valued at like a billion dollars, for example, for this thing to work. But when you look at, for example, the Philippine stock exchange, how many billion dollar companies are there? And do you think that this startup will be able to warrant that market share. So it's it's not purely bottoms up in a sense, right? It's yeah. not starting with the market and then seeing how the startup kind of fits in that Mm-mm. and how the market is developing, but it's also seeing having some view of where the startup needs to end Mm-mm. and seeing if the market can actually support that. Yes, yes. Exactly. And maybe just oh, one more point, maybe a few things around them that we consider that maybe isn't always shared when kind of time is brought up among founders is that really we also look at kind of the structure of what's available uh, in the market now so for example if it's a let's say 10 billion dollar tam is 80 percent of that concentrated in a single kind of large player or is it for example if it's a, more of a software or services market is the structure kind of like a big player contributing the more most important service and kind of expanding into all the other kind of ancillary services. Is there room for kind of specialized players to take their own share of that time? Okay, so given all of that, so what are some of the things that you feel that founders should be keeping in mind when they're still at the early stage, given everything that we've kind of discussed in terms of what investors look for? But I guess also in terms of, we kind of touched on this earlier, you know, considering where the markets currently are at. This is something we've seen a lot more of, Kendrick and I, and I think just Kickstart in general. We see a lot of investment opportunities that actually, with the model that they have, like the business model that they have, don't really need VC backing. So I think that's one of the questions that founders should ask themselves. Like, is this really the way they want to finance their idea? Because um, you're going to be married to your investors for a very long time, all the way up until like the exit of your business. But yeah, I guess it's more of like one of the things that founders really have to think about is, do I really need VC funding for this, or can I get money elsewhere? And I think, or or maybe not like get money elsewhere, but more generally make it work. Yeah, yeah. Without any equity investment, right? Yes, yes, because. Honestly, we've seen a lot of very good ideas who are already profitable and growing on its own. And it's mature on its own, right? But in terms of like, in comparison to like regional players, obviously it's not as huge, but do they really need VC funding? Like, why are they pursuing 
that route for financing. So I think it's figuring out why they're doing that. I think that's a good way to figure out like what's their main motivators for it. That's really fair and obviously sometimes a difficult point to bring up with the founders that you talk to. But I think it's really something that's worth considering. So looking at VC um, as really another source of really just another source of capital, much like you would look at debt in all its various forms. So I think that requires some introspection, uh, looking at your company, looking at kind of company you want to build. Is it something that you kind of want to grow very quickly, uh, which is, has historically been the model for VC? Um, or is this something that you kind of want to grow over time, build into something that you completely own, something that supports uh, maybe your lifestyle or what you do? Um, that's one thing. But I guess to answer a bit your question kind of more directly for the founders that do want to kind of pursue the path of VC funding, I think personally, uh, what I like to see from early stage founders is one, just a very clear understanding of the problem that they are solving. It helps if it's something that they've experienced themselves or they've dealt with for a long time. Also, just knowledge on not just the problem, not just the industry, but what has been done previously mm-hmm. by other companies, other founders that perhaps tried to tackle uh, the same problem. Then building on those experiences, uh, learning from those mistakes, uh, understanding the reasons why perhaps this did not work before. Did something change now in the market, uh, in the technology that better positions your company in comparison to solutions that were tried previously. I totally agree with you there. Thinking about like the last deal that Kendrick has worked on, one of the reasons for conviction was really figuring out like this gap in the market that they were able to address that no one else has. And these large incumbents also are not incentivized to do so. And that's why these types of players come up. Exactly. So maybe to kind of make things more concrete. So for example, if you are an agri uh, startup obviously agri has been a problem that has been around for a very long time so there's lots of data there's lots of people who have attempted to solve this problem and for me it's a really kind of good sign to see founders who have looked historically at what people have tried what has worked what has failed and kind of building their company with kind of those insights in mind i guess another thing that we would want founders to kind of keep in mind whether they're early stage or not is that you know, the best place for any company in something, I guess, maybe even ourselves or us as being in the VC startup space that sometimes we forget or we don't talk about much is that the best place for any business, whether it's like on the VC track or not, mm-hmm. for the best place for a business to be is to not need money. Yeah. Right. So I think founders should be keeping in mind, like, what is the fastest way to achieve the goals that I have? for my company without needing as little money as possible Mm. along the way. So what's the quickest way you can get there? Or if capital really is needed, you know, what's the best way that I can utilize additional capital to get to that place? You know, but that's exactly right. When they have a clear path to profitability, like a clear roadmap and metrics and milestones that they've set out for themselves to get them to where they want to be, really builds that conviction better and belief that they know what they have to do to get to where they need to be. Yeah, I think like in today's environment, like it's more important than ever that mm-hmm. founders keep that in mind. And I guess just an extra kind of tidbit is really uh, for VC funding, how that positions you to raise your next round. So as I shared earlier, typically these are 12 to 18 month windows. 
or your equity rounds are 12 to 18 month windows. Usually there's kind of a story that you try to follow. So with the funding amount that you have, how do you want to deploy um, that amount? And how does that position you into kind of attracting investors for your next fundraise? Yeah, and I guess like going back to our interest as a VC, wanting to be able to support the best startups, right? The unfortunate and maybe to some extent like unfair truth of the matter is the less you need the money, the more we, we investors want really want to get yeah. in there, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. So thank you for sharing your experiences. Thank you for you know sharing how we as Kickstart kind of think about all of these things and how the market is moving. Um, you know, but considering you guys again, like I, as as we said, uh, in your roles as senior analysts, you see practically everything that 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 like passes by. As I like to ask everyone on the podcast, we deal with ideas and concepts of the future for each of you. Like, what is one like idea, concept, execution, whatever representation of the future that you've seen recently that has particularly kind of excited you? Maybe let's start with Bettina. Excited me? Or how about made me happy? <laughs> yeah, sure. We can go with that. So we see a lot of pitches all the time. And a lot of them are very personal, right? Like it's about an experience that has happened to them. One of the ones that I could still remember it is because it was about a very personal problem about being able to connect with friends, right? So how do you make sure that people won't bail on you? So that was a very interesting startup pitch that we received. And it was interesting because of how personal the angle was. And it also shows how like we're really coming out of the pandemic with people wanting more and more FaceTime with each other and just to spend time. That was a fun one that I've seen. And it's a bit more memorable. I know it's a bit mababao, but like... It made me happy. <laughs> so <laughs> cool. Thanks, Bettina. Kendrick. Sure. Um, I think for me, really, uh, kind of my past few months, I feel like I've been pulled more and more into the IoT space. So personally, that's one of the fields that I'm looking forward to kind of doing more in, uh, where we can. It's one of these fields where people have kind of been touting for a long time that this it's around the corner. It's coming. But the argument against it has always been, and yet it has not come. And I think, you know, when you look at AI, it had a very similar kind of story. Um, people have been working on kind of artificial intelligence or the kind of concepts behind it since kind of computers came out. And slowly over time, different kind of technologies came out that led us to this point now where AI is really at the forefront. Uh, people are starting to use it in their everyday lives. I use it to write my emails. So, you know, and to get to have gotten to this point required a lot of innovation in different fields. So, you needed, first of all, the compute power to mm. process uh, all the data that's needed for artificial intelligence. Um, you needed the internet to kind of gather uh, all this data. So, I think it's kind of a similar story for me uh, in the IoT space. It's been around for a long time. Uh, the concepts are there. The products are there. But, you know, slowly people are developing kind of the infrastructure or the technologies needed to build towards the future where people actually do use IoT. For me, top of mind are kind of one connectivity. 
So 5G was kind of the big step into people starting to use IoT. But also around connectivity is building the infrastructure needed to be able to deploy this in areas where there is no 5G coverage. The other is just platform. So if you're, let's say, looking at B2B IoT, so if you're a large company, you have kind of millions or billions of IoT devices across the world, how do you manage all of that? How do you gather all of that data and make sure that um, you're creating enough or you're deriving enough value from the cost of deploying this IoT? And lastly, and this one is was really super interesting for me, is security. So security for, let's say, cybersecurity for the devices that we have now, um, your laptops, your phones, is very different from the cybersecurity that you need for kind of all these small IoT devices. Because for your phones, for your laptops, it has enough power. Uh, there, you only have a few devices. There are dedicated kind of software and kind of measures in place to protect these devices. And this is something that only came to mind because of one of the companies that we also met um, a few months ago. Uh, is for IoT devices, a lot of them are much smaller. They have access to less power. They have less compute. Uh, they aren't as powerful. Uh, so how do you how how are you able to protect these devices from kind of all the security threats that exist um, in the IoT space? And I think, oh, and and I think we are starting to see a lot of solutions come up um, around this space. There are very smart people working on the solution and. So I'm excited to see kind of how this shapes out. All right. Thank you very much, Bettina Kendrick. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts, giving us a peek into the work that you do here at Kickstart. And I'll see you guys around. Thanks for joining us. Follow Kickstart Ventures on Facebook and LinkedIn to know who we're featuring next.